Hello, I'm Pete Peterson, and this is episode 43 of the Rabbit Room Podcast. At Hutchmoot 2012, Thomas McKenzie, my wife Jennifer Trafton, and I led a session called Tales of the New Creation. And here in part two of that session, Jennifer, who is the author of The Rise and Fall of Mount Majestic and a George MacDonald scholar, talks about what she writes, why she writes, and about, as George MacDonald said, the great good that is coming. I was saying to some friends recently that sometimes I wonder how my life would be different if I spent as much time anticipating seeing Christ again as I do anticipating the next time I get to eat chocolate. And they said I should begin my Hutchmoo talk this way, so thank you for giving me my opening. Um, But seriously, uh, hope is something that can be such a wispy, ghostly, boneless sort of feeling when it's not fixed on something concrete and knowable, or in my case, edible. And Emily Dickinson it's called hope a thing with feathers perched within the soul. And I think in my case, that is a phoenix, a useless, colorful bird that, um, you know, that, that occasionally gets reborn in flames and uh, lovely healing and renewing flames. And for me, this conflagration of hope in the soul requires a story. In this present company, it's cliche to say that my childhood faith sprang to life within the borders of Narnia. Um, Narnia and my childhood are so deeply intertwined that Aslan's voice in my head still sounds like my father's. But perhaps it's slightly less cliche to say that the piece of Narnia that has most doggedly pursued me ever since childhood is not Aslan's death and resurrection in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, not Eustace's transformation into a dragon or Reepachief's brave quest to the edge of the world in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, though I love those stories, but the final chapters of The Last Battle. I am now going to spoil the ending of the Narnia Chronicles for all of you who have not read it yet, but if you're sitting here at Hutchmoot and you have not read Narnia, shame on you. <laughs> Narnia dies. Spoiler over, Narnia dies. The great giant time awakens and squeezes the sun in his fist, and the stars are called home. Aslan stands at the doorway of the world, and all who love him pass through it, and then the door is shut forever. But the children turn and see a beautiful new country before them, and Aslan with laughter in his eyes running ahead, shouting, come further in, come further up. And very slowly, as they look around, they realize that they, that they know this place. It is familiar, yet changed. It is Narnia made new again. It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound around, away among the mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turn away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. 
I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looks a little bit like this. Come further up, come further in. And then they begin to run faster and faster, up waterfalls and over mountains, further up and further in, reuniting with those that they have loved, discovering worlds within worlds, new Narnias, new Englands, finding to their great joy that no good thing is ever destroyed. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This vision of the future had a profound effect on me as a child. It made me burn with happiness inside. I wanted, with every cell of my being, to go there to that new Narnia and to be part of this great story. The metaphors and the symbols that dig into our hearts when we're children have a way of spreading their fruit, good and bad, throughout the rest of our lives. And this little tapestry of metaphors at the end of a fantasy book became in some ways the narrative frame of my faith, as well as my calling as a writer. In high school and in college and for years afterwards, I would regularly reread those final chapters, and they set my soul on fire again, and the phoenix was reborn. And again and again in my life, it's, it's always to this place that I come back, to this flaming heart of hope. The theology that I gleaned from the last battle was reinforced by my father's answers to my questions about what happens when we die. I never heard from him about people's souls going to heaven. I heard about the resurrection of bodies, about a new heaven and a new earth when Christ returns. But it was not long before I was jolted by the difference between that and what I encountered in most churches or many churches and in popular culture, a sort of static experience of bliss, an eternity as nebulous as a cotton ball, as placid and final as the flat line on a heart monitor, and if Hollywood is to believed, be believed, filled with white-robed bureaucrats, angels earning wings, and a God who looks a little bit like Whoopi Goldberg. But in the prophet Isaiah's vision of the new heaven and the new earth, There are houses being built and vineyards being planted. There's feasting and laboring. The children of God enjoy the works of their hands, and the lions become vegetarians. This is a place where things happen. George MacDonald, in one of his sermons, tells of a little boy who was terrified of going to heaven because he had been told that he would become a pillar in the house of God, and he did not want to become a pillar. And I don't blame him. People have often talked about going to heaven in terms of entering into a state of blessedness. But at the end of the Narnia Chronicles, the end of the Narnia Chronicles helped me to think about our future hope as a story rather than a state of being. A state sits, a story runs. 
So when I read N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, a few years ago, it was not a radical shift in thought for me, but a welcome affirmation and expansion of my childhood belief. The older I get in my life and in my faith, the more my entire theology seems centered around this doctrine of new creation, of which resurrection is the heartbeat. The idea of God creating a new earth, where all of the beauty of creation will reach its completion, where all of our broken potentialities as human beings are finally fulfilled, and the new story begins. If we really grasp this as a concrete reality in the not-so-distant future, if we lived in it every moment on tiptoe with expectation, as Wright says, it would utterly change our perspective on life right now. When I do get glimpses, I understand how the early Christians walked fearlessly into the Roman Colosseum to be torn apart by lions, because compared to the immensity of this hope, there's nothing left on earth to be afraid of. I think one of the reasons why the theology of new creation is a hard concept for many people to grasp is that other Christian doctrines tend to appeal primarily to the intellect or to the emotions, and new creation makes an enormous demand on our imagination. And that's a spiritual muscle that the church is not used to exercising. But that's precisely why, for me, that this has been the doorway into my heart more than any other doorway to the gospel. And the writers that I've most loved, like Lewis and MacDonald and Tolkien and Chesterton, affect me so much, not because they necessarily theologically articulate this, but they break open the imagination and they give me glimpses of a greater story, a greater beauty. And that's why, like Wright, I see the artist's role in this context, being an agent of new creation in the now creating signposts and foretastes of hope and delight and beauty in the midst of the darkness and the despair of the present age. One story has, that has given me an artistic symbol of this is Tolkien's strange little tale, Leaf by Niggle, which he published along with his famous essay on fairy stories. I feel slightly more guilty about spoiling the end of this one for you, but too bad. Niggle is a painter. His gifts are unappreciated by his neighbors. He's curmudgeonly but kind-hearted. His masterpiece is a huge painting of a tree, um, but it's never finished because his work is continually interrupted by other people's needs. And in the end, his canvas is used to patch a neighbor's roof, all but one small piece, a perfectly painted leaf with a hint of mountains in the distance. Niggle must go on a journey, which we understand to signify death. And at last, he comes to a forest with the mountains behind them, the very mountains that he had barely sketched in his painting. And before him stands a great tree, his tree, finished, perfect, alive. And he raises his arms to it, and he says, it is a gift. His art is a gift, and the perfected fulfillment of his vision is also a gift. Niggle's picture had been a glimpse of something eternally real, whether his neighbors recognized it or not. And Tolkien's story reminds me that what we do here, what we create, what we protect, what we sacrifice, is not in vain. In every leaf that we paint and in every generous act for others, we are planting the seeds of eternity. Not in the sense that we're going to be rewarded in some far-off heavenly realm, but in, that, in the sense that we will someday see God turn the feeble artwork of our lives into something more real, more beautiful, and more lasting than we could ever have imagined. 
This life is a kind of painfully prolonged piano practice for the day when we will finally pound out our perfected concertos in front of the cosmos. New creation is a reality that reaches from the future into the present, encompassing who we are right now. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. With Christ, the new creation has begun, even though it has not yet reached its fulfillment. Resurrection is written into the pages of the universe. Every dawn reminds us of it. Every springtime sings it out. All that is good here on earth will be what it was always meant to be. All that has been twisted and bent will be restored and remade. I believe that this making and remaking will go on forever. For our God is a maker whose creativity is continually gushing forth. And in that new world, we will all be artists, participating in that remaking. And we will all be scientists, peeling back the layers of his infinite wonders, running further up and further into a universe of perpetual discovery. Now, I said before that the Chronicles of Narnia gave me the narrative framework for my calling as a writer. And what I mean is this. I realized a few years ago that my longing for that restored Narnia is one of the reasons why my heart continually flees to children's books. Because in a broken world, I ache for innocence, for a soul washed clean from all adult cynicism. But while I was pondering these things, a dear friend challenged me to think about the difference between the innocence of Eden and the redeemed innocence of the resurrection. The playful comedy of childhood must someday give way to a more mature comedy in the Dante sense, a story that has passed through tragedy and come out laughing on the other side. And both of these things, Eden and resurrection, are different but vital possibilities within children's literature. For the child must grow up, but as George MacDonald says, the child is not meant to die, but to be forever fresh born. On Andrew Peterson's new album, the final song includes this line, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken than redeemed by love. And when I heard it, I immediately thought of my friend's challenge to me to think through what this means as a writer of children's books. And it hit me, I am making stories for little people who are about to be broken by the world. Maybe some already have been. What can I do? I can't freeze them in perpetual innocence, and I certainly don't want to tear away that innocence, as so much of our culture does. But I can perhaps give them a peek at the hope that lies on the other side of brokenness and give them a song to sing when the night comes. The book that helps me here is MacDonald's last fantasy, Lilith. And I don't have to worry about spoiling the end of this one for you because it's such a weird book that the end won't really tell you anything about the rest of the book. <laughs> the main character is a man called Mr. Vane, and on his bizarre journey through the land of seven dimensions, which I won't tell you about, he meets a community of little ones, children whose maturity has been stunted somehow, though if they become lazy and greedy, they grow up to be giants who have forgotten how to be children. They are innocent and full of laughter, wise even without knowledge of the world, but they are lacking water, water to grow with and water to cry with, a river of sorrow and repentance that makes the whole earth clean. They need to learn to weep, to accept the suffering and the responsibility that comes with adulthood, for sorrow is the catalyst and for spiritual growth and maturity. Not a sorrow that embitters, but a sorrow that sweetens joy by the recognition of its preciousness. 
And this, maturity, this maturing process is not a growing away from childhood, but a growing towards true, true childhood, a childlikeness of the soul rather than a childlikeness of attitude. Over the course of the book, the little ones do indeed have to face evil and fear. They have to fight a great battle, and they have to grieve over the death of one they love. And yet they are able to keep their childlikeness to the end. And by this, MacDonald means a purity of joy, a playful love, a readiness to trust, a strength in humility. They are MacDonald's answer to Jesus' statement that only the one who receives the kingdom of God like a little child can enter it. Like the end of the last battle, Lilith ends with a resurrection morning. Though unlike the characters in Narnia, Mr. Vane is only dreaming and has to go back to the waking world before he enters the gates of the great city. The little ones, of course, have already run ahead of him, but he is given a taste of the new dawn on the new earth, and it is as breathtaking a vision as anything we find in C.S. Lewis. And in fact, there are echoes of the great divorce in MacDonald's description of the realness of things. The creation suddenly made meaningful to him in a deep down-to-the-bones way. All things in harmony, all things shown to be what their creator had always intended them to be. He eventually comes upon the river of life, flowing out of the great city, replenishing the land. The river, he says, grew lovelier and lovelier until I knew that never before had I seen real water. Nothing in this world is more than like it. What I love most about MacDonald's vision is that he creates a crescendo of excitement, like a child barely able to sleep on Christmas Eve thinking about the joyful morning that is to come. In, in his first fantasy, Fantasties, he had only hinted at this hope. There's a line at the end that, that uh, is repeated, a great good is coming, is coming, is coming to the antidotes. And Lilith deliberately echoes this prophecy in Fantasties and answers it. Something more than the sun, greater than the light, is coming, is coming none the less surely coming that it is long upon the road. What matters today or tomorrow or 10,000 years to life himself, to love himself? He is coming, is coming, and the necks of all humanity are stretched out to see him come. Every morning will they thus outstretch themselves. Every evening will they droop and wait until he comes. To be able to look at the world as it is, and be able to glimpse the threads of beauty and goodness of what the world will someday become. To be able to imagine a different way of being human on this earth takes an enormous feat of imagination. And this is one of the reasons why nurturing the imagination of children is so vitally important. Because if they cannot imagine, they cannot hope. And, if with, and without hope, they are storyless creatures, trapped in a prosaic world in which the pages are torn away one by one and thrown in the fire, and no one looks ahead with the joy of discovery, and no one ever peeks at the last page of the book to rest in the assurance of a happy ending. But no, not a happy ending, a happy beginning, for that is our hope, the hope of a resurrected story, the hope of a new first page, as Anne Shirley would say, a new day with no mistakes in it. What will story mean there? In our present time, story depends upon conflict, movement, growth. When the conflict ends, the story ends. But according to the last battle, once the conflict ends, the story is just beginning. How can this be? What will a new earth story be like? 
I don't know about you, but this question thrills me. I imagine that the new incarnation of story will feel much like running, like constant discovery, like facing the challenge of a new waterfall and deciding to run up it, like unwrapping worlds within worlds, peeling an infinite onion without the tears, further up and further in. McDonald's vision, Tolkien's vision, Lewis's vision, all of them fall short. We can spend time knocking holes in their theology and finding fault with their analogies, but they're only peddling metaphors, just as we are in our own faulty stories. As N.T. Wright says, we can only speak of new creation in the language of symbols, in pictures, in possibilities, but folded in such metaphors, the phoenix of hope rises from the flames and lives again. I think it's important that all of these stories take us to the very edge of that hope and peek over, but, but don't go any further. It would be presumptuous for art to paint what is beyond our human imagining, but art can point the way forward, like a lamppost in a Narnian winter. Our task is to create in our art and in our lives the most beautiful, the most achingly authentic pictures of healing and hope and grace that we are capable of and then say to the world, guess what? The reality is better than this. A great good is coming, is coming, is coming. And all the earth is on tiptoes waiting to receive it. For more information regarding the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room music composed and performed by Ben Shive.